Hi there everyone and welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK. That is at Hits21UK. And you can email us too. Just send it on over to Hits21Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. We are currently looking back at the year 2005. It's our first 2005 episode. And this week, we are going to be covering the period between the 1st of January and the 22nd of January. Uh, before we get going, I just want to go around the table. Um, how old were we, or how old were we going to be in 2005, and where where were we in our lives? Like, Andy, so what, how old are you in 2005? What, what, year, what year do you become on your birthday in that year? I was, I was 12, going on 13. I was uh, in year 8, going into year 9. Um, I remember this year very well. It's a big year for me. Um, I kind of like some of my like most lifelong friendships formed during this year. Some of like my big teenage fun times happened during this year. Um, yeah, I remember two thousand and five very well. It's lovely to revisit this. Yeah, uh, Lizzie, how about you in two thousand and five? It's really bad that I can't remember, isn't it? How old I was in two thousand five? Um, <laughs> well, how old are you now? I think you're like... one year older than me, aren't you? So. <laughs> Yeah. How old am I now? I I don't know actually. How old am I? Um, <laughs> right. I just turned thirty-two like two weeks ago. Way happy birthday! So you would have been Thank fourteen-ish, go, turning fourteen yeah, yeah. in two thousand five. So you would have been in Four. year nine, going on year ten. So I graduated yeah. um, high school in two thousand seven. So yeah, year nine checks out. Cool. Mm. I uh, How was. About you, Rob? Yeah, well, I was uh, 10 going on 11. I was just finishing primary school and entering high school. Um, There's a particular run of number ones in 2005 that might give away my uh, fondness for that particular (laughs) little bit. Um, Just the the summer of 2005, (laughs) having a really long summer before high school and then starting uh, big school, as it was called. Um, So... (laughs) We've given a little bit, a bit of a rundown as to how we were doing in that year. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get into 2005. Now, obviously, because last week was a Christmas episode, there is no poll. So we're going to rush ahead and give you some news from 2005, from January 2005. 61,000 people attend a benefit concert in Cardiff to raise money for those affected by the Boxing Day tsunami uh, in the Indian Ocean. At the time, it was the largest concert in Britain since Live Aid. Acts on the bill included Craig David, Charlotte Church, Badly Drawn Boy, Manic Street Preachers, Gaudy Looking Chain, Sting, Eric Clapton and Lulu. And at the end of the day, over £1.2 million was raised. Pictures of Prince Harry wearing a Nazi swastika armband at a fancy dress party appear on the front page of The Sun. Harry, who was 21 years old at the time, immediately apologised for his actions after significant backlash from the media and from the general public. Naughty boy, Harry. And Britain's tallest self-supporting structure, the Bee of the Bang, is unveiled at the City of Manchester Stadium by athlete Linford Christie. However, shortly after being unveiled, bits of the sculpture started to fall off. (laughs) 
After four years and £1.7 million worth of repairs, Manchester City Council eventually took it down in 2009. Oh, what a mess. As someone who only moved to Manchester in 2013, I've never heard of this. Never heard of it. Yeah, Uh, a lot of people like to forget about it. Um, It was a pretty impressive thing, but it wasn't impressive enough to stay together. It was one of those sculptures that's like dangerous in high winds, and so they just gave up in 2009 and were just like, nope, we're decommissioning it, like, it's done. Um, The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. The Incredibles for one more week, White Noise for one week, Closer for one week, and then Meet the Fockers begins a four-week run at the top of the UK box office. Uh, meanwhile, Dick and Dom in the Bungalow is criticised in Parliament for its lavatorial content by Conservative MP Peter Luff. Lavatorial is just... I'm using that word. That's a fantastic word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Mark Berry, the dancer and percussionist from the Happy Mondays, who you and I know as Bez, wins the third edition of Celebrity Big Brother. Meanwhile, Jerry Springer, the opera featuring characters Jesus, Mary and God, airs on BBC Two, despite objections from Christian Voice and other religious advocacy groups. Can I give you a quick story about Bez? Go on. Go ahead. So this is, I mean, this is really weird, but you know, I said 2005 was the year that I formed like some of my strongest friendships and one of my very best, it's not Bez, one of my very best friends (laughs) I kind of became very close friends with in 2005 and a few years ago... Him and his wife um, had their first baby. And when we found out, myself and my husband were in the pub at the time um, in Salford, which is where we lived at the time. And we were just eating our tea. And suddenly, on the table next to us, Bez came and sat down, just on his own. We were like, (laughs) what the hell? That's Bez. This is weird. We don't know how to react. And then seconds later, I got a video call off my friend saying, we're having a baby. And it's like a big core memory of like, oh, my God, they're having a baby. I'm so happy for them. And I always remember that Bez was there with us to celebrate that moment. It was so odd. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And in wrestling, Triple H, alongside Ric Flair, defeats Edge, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, Batista and Randy Orton in an Elimination Chamber match to win the vacant World Heavyweight Championship. Shawn Michaels appeared as a special guest referee. Okay, Andy, the album charts, how are they looking right now? Yeah, um, we have a bit of a kind of gradual run-up into the year because we start the year with um, a few things returning to number one. It's kind of a greatest hits revisit of 2004 for the first few weeks of the year because first of all we have American Idiot returning to number one for one week in the first week of the year which I suspect will be because a lot of people got it for Christmas or bought it in the Christmas sales um, I definitely got it that Christmas so I will be amongst those people who got that back to number one in the first week of January 2005 um, and then that is toppled by Scissor Sisters their um, self-titled debut, which was number one last year, was the biggest selling album of 2004. That's back at number one for one week. Before it is toppled by the first new album of the year, it's another debut, it's another kind of big indie uh, line in the sand where the genre is starting to get going now. It's Hot Fuss by The Killers. 
is uh, number one now for two weeks and it would go eight times platinum spawn all manner of very well-known indie classics so yeah that feels like a bit of a moment hot force getting to number one there so yeah that's all i've got for you this week so quite a good collection of albums there american idiot scissor sisters and hot force january 2005 was solid on the charts yeah if only i could say the same for the singles <laughs> uh, lizzie how are things looking in America in 2005, in the opening few weeks? Yeah, and if only you could say the same for America as well. Um, <laughs> so in terms of singles, um, it's a new year and a new US number one, which is Let Me Love You by Mario. It stayed uh, at number one yeah. for nine weeks in the US, but narrowly missed out on number one in the UK when it got to number two in March of this year. So we'll have to wait to see what kept that off the top spot. Over on the albums chart, there's only one new number one album to mention, followed by two re-entries. First up is Loyal to the Game by Tupac, his ninth studio album and his fifth posthumous album. It was produced by Eminem and it stayed at number one for one week in the US, but it only got to number 20 in the UK. And speaking of Eminem, just to round us off this week, um, Encore returned to number one for two more weeks after that, Followed by two more weeks for Andy's favourite album, American Idiot by Green Day. I mean, it's, um, it's not, I'm not sure it's my favourite album ever. Your favourite album of this period? Yeah, it's probably in my top five ever, to be fair. So, fair enough. Yeah, I've, I've not been slandered there. That's fair enough. Your favourite <laughs> album of January 2005. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I can live with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, okay. Thank you both very much. Uh, we are going to come back over to the UK now. And back to the singles chart. Um, just before we get going with the songs this week, of course, it's probably worth reminding you that Band A 20 were the first number one single of 2005. Uh, that was the fourth week that it spent at number one. So the first new number one of 2005 is this. How can I just let you walk away? Just let you leave without a trace When I stand here taking every breath with you Ooh, you're the only one who really knew me at all How can you just walk away from me When all I can do is watch you leave Cause we shared the laughter and the pain And even shared the tears You're the only one who really knew me at all So take a look at me now Well there's just an empty space Okay then, this is Against All Odds by Steve Brookstein. Released as the lead single from his debut studio album titled Heart and Soul, 
Against All Odds is Steve Brookstein's first single to be released in the UK and his first to reach number one. However, it is his last. The song is a cover of the original song by Phil Collins, which reached number two in 1984. The song was also covered by Mariah Carey and Westlife in the year 2000 and reached number one. You can go back and listen to all of our oh, uh, very positive <laughs> thoughts on that one. Um, oh, yeah. Against All Odds first entered the UK charts at number two, getting to number one in its second week on the chart. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 26,000 copies in a week where there were no new entries to the top 10 but did see Out of Touch by United Nations get to number seven and Tilt Your Head Back by Nelly and Christina Aguilera get to number nine. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Against All Odds dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 10 weeks. The song has never received any official certification from the British phonographic industry. Not a proud record for the first ever X Factor winner. So. Andy, kick off 2005, Against All Odds by Steve, lovely Steve, apparently, from X Factor. How, how do you feel? <sighs> hmm. Sigh. Yeah. Sigh. And another sigh. That's how I feel, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this is a first, as far as I'm aware, not just the first song of the year, but I believe this is the first time that a song has come up twice. Um, on the show mm. that we've had two different versions of the same song. Am I correct in that? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we just just missed the boat on Bob the Builder doing Mambo number no. 5 because that was number one in 99. But um, yeah, this is the first time a song has come up twice. And honestly, of all the songs that this could have happened to, it's bloody against all odds. I mean, <laughs> that's probably... I, I do think that is quite possibly the worst song I think we've ever covered up to this point, the Mariah Carey and Westlife version. Like, I really, truly hate that. Um, it's awful. And I don't like the Phil Collins original either. There's something in the bones of this song that I just find deeply, powerfully tedious. Just really, really dull in an almost profound way in its dullness. Kind of like Lady in Red... <laughs> Or um, or true by Spandau Ballet, where it's just like there is nothing I can get from this at all. I was kind of surprised by Steve Brookstein, Brookstein, Brookstein. I don't know by Steve Brookstein. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of surprised by his voice in that it is actually quite soulful. I can see why that caught on um, with the viewers who were kind of voting for the nicest voice, presumably, and the nicest young man, because that's how these votes tend to go. I can see why he won. But that voice very quickly becomes quite obvious in its limitations. This song is hard enough to get anything out of in terms of emotion, but Steve really doesn't squeeze any juice from the orange here at all. He just does it karaoke style. Um, Not to mention there's some vocal tics that you think really should have been ironed out in production, that someone really should have told him, no, no, don't do it that way. Most notably, take a look at me now. Nar. He keeps on saying that and it's really weird. Like he notably doesn't say now. He says, Take a look at me now. And it's very odd. Very, very odd. So I don't like this at all. And it's got that cheesy X Factor production to it. Of course it does. But then kind of every version of this song has that anyway, so that doesn't stand out too much. The problem I have with this is that it's just so damn lazy. So lazy. And I completely agree with your observation there, Rob, that this is not a proud note for X Factor to start on because 
yes, it's a first series and, you know, no one would have known how big it would get and how influential it would get. But we're not at the start of history here. We've just had Pop Idol that produced Will Young, who had an absolutely nuclear hit with Evergreen and has since made a pretty good, authentic career for himself. We've had Girls Aloud, who have been smash hits, you know, who have really taken off. There is actually some credibility to these shows. You can actually make stars out of them at this time. And the snobbishness and the sense of inauthenticity that would come with later years of The X Factor, that's not a given at this stage. Because Will Young, Gareth, well, not so much Gareth Gates, but Will Young and Girls Aloud in particular, and kind of Hearsay as well, you know, they made it. They did do well. You can do well out of these shows. And what does Steve Brookstein get? He gets this cheap naff cover of a really bad Phil Collins song that's been done by everyone in the world already. Just really? Have they got nothing more than this? The kind of the litmus test I would often use for X Factor winners singles, which I'll probably use going forward, is is this worth it for them? As the outcome, as the prize, is this worth it? Because, you know, you're making a public spectacle of yourself for months, having to go through, you know, big band week, and then love week, and then, I don't know, perform a song on stilts week, and, you know, <laughs> declare your love to Simon week, and Sharon calls you a dickhead week. You know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that you have to go through on the X Factor, and then you win, and you get a single. And that single is your one and only lifeline because you have got nine months. You have nine months before the next series of X Factor starts in which that is your moment and that window of opportunity will be firmly closed if you haven't done something good by then. And it's caught out much better winners than Steve Brookstein. um, And it certainly caught him out. And yes, he couldn't have known how ruthless that machine would be. But it's kind of obvious in retrospect when they're giving them something as naff as this. Like, they're just not even trying at all. I kind of get the feeling that they didn't want him to win. Because, I mean, there is definitely a pattern that emerges over the years. That you get these really cool, interesting runners-up. Like JLS, Ollie Mers, um, Rebecca Ferguson, One Direction as well to some extent. You, you know, you get these very viable runners-up who could have big careers. Who are beaten to their post by a very nice, bland, white, ballad singer, young man. And that is a trope that just keeps on recurring. You get Matt Cardle, Leon Jackson, Shane Ward. You know, it's just a thing that happens all the time um, because as much as X-Factor tries to present itself as a cool, relevant, happening thing, it kind of seems obvious that the voter base is mostly older people who are looking for someone kind and friendly who you might see singing to them on Blackpool Pier. And... Steve Brookstein is the inevitable result of that is that you get a NAF winner who's got no kind of future in the business so you just farm him out with a Phil Collins cover make a few bucks off it and there we go that's the end of the story and so I kind of understand his bitterness about the whole experience because boy is he bitter he really really is not happy about how things went with him on the X Factor and afterwards feels like he was kind of shafted by the whole experience and I get it you know sometimes he lays it on a bit thick and maybe he could move on after 20 years but I get it I do get it it's a ruthless machine and this is the first kind of very obvious um, representation of that because at least they kind of had a go with Gareth Gates even though his music was awful but they're just not trying at all with Steve Brooks in here they're just clearly making a little cash grab to put a bow on the first series and it's like yeah come back next year and you'll get another one of these and we'll all forget about him and we did unfortunately. So I feel bad for him, um, but this song is rubbish. 
rubbish, and it doesn't really deserve the length of time that I talked about it, so I'll clear the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, Lizzie, how about you? Yeah, um, I agree with pretty much everything you have to say there, Andy. Um, like you, I just... I mean, I don't really have much to say about the song in general. Like, when we discussed the Westlife version, I mainly had a problem with the execution of the cover, but admitted that I wasn't a huge fan of the original because it's melodramatic and self-pitying in a way that I find extremely hard to get on with. Like, it's divorce pop taken to its kind of logical extreme, and... I don't really have a reference point for that. It's not something I can identify with. And for Brookstein himself, he's not a bad singer, but he's not a very distinct one either. The inclusion of the gospel choir is fine, but it just makes Brookstein sound like a karaoke act who believes his own hype. Mm. It's just, it's really sort of jarring and it doesn't fit and... And I know the X Factor, the whole thing is like, it's not just a singing competition, it's like, who has the best star appeal? And ultimately that fails because, like you say, Andy, the voter base is largely people who vote for people they like as a personality on a television show. And that doesn't always translate to chart success or anything else like other than you know you were good in a tv series once um i mean i feel like there's a separate discussion to be had about brookstein himself and his treatment on the show anyway but that's all i have on the song and so i'm just gonna hand you back it's not very good yeah i feel like we could talk for hours about the various things that steve brookstein has done or said Mm -hmm or allegedly done, or said. Um, But, like, yeah, his treatment on The X Factor and afterwards, it sounds like he was under the impression that once he won, he would have a bit more control. And then Simon Cow was like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, you do our bidding, basically. You know, we'll throw you a bone every now and again. Um, But, yeah, like, he ended up doing one album after this, I think, which was called, like, 40,000 Things, I think, or something like that. And it's a lot of original singer songwritery material. Um, he wasn't happy that more than half of the album, his debut album, was going to be made up by covers. Um, and it seems like he fell foul of Simon. Um, and he definitely paid the price in terms of where his career went. Um, I have tried to ignore everything that kind of happened with his career to just, you know, focus on the song, paint a picture of how I feel about the song itself rather than him and all of the things that he's apparently said to people on Twitter and all the arguments he's apparently been involved with. Because I actually think that he's the best thing about this version. He isn't the best vocalist in the world um, and I do think he's a bit boring which isn't a crime but it probably i think in a way explains why he likes to really put himself across as like outspoken and controversial it's like he puts his opinions where his personality should be 
Um, mm, but yeah. while he's not the best vocalist in the world, he does provide a sense of vulnerability and desperation to this. He actually does sound a bit divorced and pathetic and sad, which means that he's really suitable for this material, like way more suitable than Mariah Carey and Westlife were. Um, and it means his performance is believable because of how like ordinary it feels. Um, I'm not saying that it's charming in the way that Atomic Kitten or Michelle McManus were, but you can see what I'm getting at. Um, but I'm not really keen on the original anyway. I mean, I think we've discussed this before. I don't dislike it, but it's just, you know, it's all right. Like, I'm mixed on Colin's solo material generally. I, I'm, I think I'm mixed on everything he touches after 1978, to be honest, um, w with a couple of exceptions. So, like, any interpretation of this is going to leave me feeling unmoved. Um, but to be honest, what I found most remarkable about this this week is that it's not on Spotify, and the actual single version of the song isn't even on YouTube. No. The only version of the song is the music video, which means that there is no version out there on the internet right now that doesn't have Kate Thornton shouting, <laughs> Steve! <laughs> before the final <laughs> And so the only version I've been able to find for the show is one where just before the final chorus and they do the doom, 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 and it's just there going, Steve! And oh, and then and everybody cheers over the final chorus because the music video mix is the only version of it that exists on YouTube. I've looked everywhere and just to try and find the single version of it that may have been played on radios and stuff, but no. Because when we were originally reading out the stats about this song and it said that it had sold 26,000 copies in its first week, I thought, surely that's 126,000 <laughs> and I've just missed the one off, but no. Um, it turns out it's just 26,000 and I think that this week, more than any other week, um, explains that something needed to change in the way that they compiled the charts. I would just say bear in mind that the single had been out before this week. Yeah, that's true, and it didn't get to number one thanks to Band Aid, so it probably did shift a lot. Of course. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, yeah, so that'd be twenty six thousand second week sales, which, based on what we've seen so far on the show, I would say that its first week sales were probably about I don't know a hundred thousand maybe. Um, it sold a hundred twenty seven thousand seven hundred and one copies in its first week in the UK. Oh, that's a bit of a... See, that I feel like that's a bit of a shame because that's mm. more than Michelle McManus, I think. Yeah. And now it, yeah, now it feels like it maybe just... It was just unlucky that it went up against Band-Aid 20. And so then yeah. the treatment that he had from Simon Cowell perhaps feels less justified. I get the feeling that Simon just didn't like Steve. So I just... You know, like no. after it was all over, I just don't think Simon Cowell enjoyed having artists that kicked up a fuss. You know, I no, think he, he just preferred having ones that did what he wanted to do. Yeah, he doesn't like artists who give as good as they get. And I think, I'm not saying Steve Brookson was a match for him in terms of power or anything, because he's clearly not. But he's, you know, he's not that much younger than Simon. And he's definitely got an ability to stand up to him and he kind of knows how the world works a bit and stuff. Yeah, far too much of a match for Simon for him to be comfortable with, I think. I've definitely always got that impression. And uh, Sharon Osbourne had this thing about him. I don't know if you remember on the final. 
Yeah. Where he after he just performed this, I think, um, as his, you know, pitch for the winner's song, she really read him to Phil for no obvious reason. Where she was like, yeah. Oh, I think you're cocky and I think you don't deserve this and it's kind of inexplicable why she did that. And I don't know if maybe he just rubbed people up the wrong way. And I'm not sure whether that was necessarily his fault. I don't know. So, but something obviously went on there. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like maybe one of those moments that... For, well, I mean, it is from the start, but I think a lot of people eventually come to see the X Factor for the kind of pantomime that it is. And yeah. maybe that's just one of those moments where it generates a bit of controversy. And that's that was the... I think in the end, I think that was the the ultimate aim of X Factor, which was more of a shock thing than Pop Idol. It felt yeah. like way more of a product than Pop Idol ever did. Pop Idol feels yeah. <laughs> positively like novel compared to uh, the X Factor. But do we have anything more to say about Steve, Steve Brookstein? Not about Steve, but I just want to put a pin in this because I think quite rare that this happens that this is obviously the first song we're covering in 2005 and it's a pretty high quality year i think we've got coming up i think there is a real chance that this could end up as our loser of the year as our worst rated song of the year i'm just Mm. gonna say i think we will be revisiting this at christmas 2005 it's got a real shot at getting that dubious title (laughs) so we're in early with that one yeah Hmm. all right then well next up and second up on our show this week is this. Okay, this is Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley. Released as a standalone single, Jailhouse Rock is Elvis Presley's 24th single to be reissued in the UK, his 135th single to be released overall in the UK, and his 19th single to reach number one in the UK. And this is not the last time that we'll be discussing Elvis on this podcast either. The song is a reissue of the single which originally got to number one in 1958. Jailhouse Rock went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Steve Brookstein off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 21,000 copies, beating competition from The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, which got to number three, Breathe by Erasure, which got to number four, Filthy Gorgeous by Scissor Sisters, which got to number five, Object of My Desire by Dana Rain, which got to number seven, and Cut Off by Kasabian, which got to number eight. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Jailhouse Rock dropped nine places to number ten. 
By the time it was done on the charts, Jailhouse Rock had spent a total of 27 weeks inside the top 100. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. So Lizzie, take it away. Oh wow, you're just going to drop me in just like that? (laughs) (laughs) Gee, just throw me straight into the frying pan, why don't you? Straight into the jailhouse, (laughs) as it were. Yeah, like, oh thanks for making me talk about one of the most legendary songs in rock and roll history. (laughs) One that kick-started a million other pop acts and pretty much opened the floodgates, even though he wasn't the first and he undoubtedly copped the styles of others. Yeah, this is where it started for a lot of music. And so, yeah, thank you for dropping me in straight like that, making me take that mantle. <laughs> Appreciate it. No, it's um, it's good, this. It's really good. Um, I think, you know, when we last covered Elvis, we had that chat. I think, Rob, you raised a point about how if you ask someone to kind of picture Elvis or, like, get a sort of snippet of Elvis's voice in their head, chances are they will picture 70s Elvis in a big spangly jumpsuit going, oh, and thank you very much. Like, that's the sort of, the the kind of, the symbol of Elvis that has endured throughout the decades. Whereas here, what you get is that very young, like, sort of blazing a trail Elvis that, I think a lot of maybe particularly me as a kid wouldn't necessarily have known about because again like even myself I think I I've mentioned when we did a little less conversation I was familiar with Elvis but I was more familiar with old Elvis and I knew about the hits I would have known about this but yeah it is still quite sort of striking 20 years on to hear that that young voice and the kind of punchy, you know, percussion and and kind of the upbeat tempo rather than what you get later on, which is the gospel choirs and the the big Vegas showpieces and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's um, it's kind of like I say, it's really hard to talk about because it is such an important milestone for rock and roll music in general, and the, there is definitely that sense that a lot of music wouldn't exist if not for this, or at least this sort of thing. So yeah, I can imagine, I feel like in early 2005, how would I have felt about this? Especially if I was a big pop fan, which I kind of was, but I was sort of on the periphery. I think I maybe would have seen this as a bit of an, an oddity, it was like, but I'd be on board with it. I think later on, when we get to Elvis's other number ones, I'd be maybe thinking okay, maybe, you know, time to let this let this lie a bit. It's kind of run its course. But, yeah, it's um, it's nice to be reminded of the song. Um, really like it. Okay, Andy, how about you? Yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that, really. I, I definitely share that sense of, even if it's not anyone's... Well, not well, it will be someone's, but even if it's not my absolute favourite Elvis song... You can certainly appreciate its significance. That it's to be honest, it probably wouldn't even be in my top twenty Elvis songs. To be honest, but it's it is era defining, um, an era beginning. Really, it's um, it's it's. I mean, what do you want me to say? It's Jailhouse Rock. It's kind of like asking me to talk yeah. about Rock Around the Clock or asking me to talk about I Want to Hold Your Hand. You know, where these are big, great monoliths in how the canon of popular music was constructed, and so on their own, they 
they they sort of you know don't have much to them because everything that has come since has improved upon them to some extent or has developed them to some extent whereas the context of wow this is how it all started and this is how the like i say that canon of popular music was put together the sense of significance of these songs is so great that you really can't sum it up in a couple of minutes um so it's quite a hard task that we have to deal with here i mean with this song i think from what I know about Elvis, which, you know, I do know about Elvis. I'm not by any means an expert, though. I do like Elvis. But from what I know about this, this is kind of the point to me where the labels and the agents and everyone who was behind Elvis really hooked on to the fact that he wasn't just a very popular musician and popular musicians were one thing, but also artists could be sold as commodities that, you know, movements started around artists or they had the potential to do so. You know, the whole kind of discovery of teenagers as a concept was obviously very closely paired with Elvis and James Dean and a lot of other kind of figures in the mid-50s. And that's not a coincidence, really, that those two things are tied together because the audience for Elvis was kind of waiting to be seized upon, really, that he's very, very suave and cool and very sexual and very kind of liberated and kind of seems like he'll do whatever the hell he wants. And in this song, you know, he's still having fun even though he's in jail. Like, this man just can't be tamed. And that is revolutionary. And there is an audience of people who aren't as prudish as their forebears who are waiting to get into this kind of stuff. And so that just opens the floodgates, really, of popular music as liberation, popular music as a form of expression and rebellion. And this crystallizes that as, like I say, as a commodity, as a product, as an idea that can be sold. That Elvis is now a popular culture figure of, like, Elvis means something to a group of people. And that idea was taken and run with how the Beatles mean something to people and how all sorts of artists have gone and run with that from there. And so that's, that's what I think this song and Elvis as a whole really contributes to popular music history. The idea that, um, you know, you can really centre a pop culture movement and centre an audience around a central figure and make a absolute crap ton of money out of it as well. Um, just to comment on, you know, the kind of, oh, thank you very much, Elvis, that, you know, you were talking about there, Lizzie, that I like to refer to that Elvis as the one who went to Paradise Hotel to see Howard and Marvin. Um, and that's a very, very <laughs> different Elvis. And that Elvis is absolutely naff. And I like to forget that he ever exists because... This version of Elvis, as much as I'm fully aware that he was not the nicest person in the world, to say the very least, no. um, he is one hell of a talented singer and musician and artist, really. Um, he absolutely cribbed off so many people. Um, it has to be acknowledged that he really took music that was being made by black people and converted it for a white audience. It's as simple yes. as that. Um, oh, yeah. But, I mean you do have to give him some credit, quite a lot of credit for the talent and the style and the charisma that he poured into these songs. And so I really appreciate Elvis and I'm really glad that we get a chance to discuss him again after we did with a um, little less conversation. But um, yeah, yeah, I really like this. Like I say, it's not one of my favourite Elvis tracks ever, but I'm really glad that it's here and it really is quite a big moment in history, really. Um, so yeah, I've tried to do that justice there, but it's kind of impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with the two of you. Like, you know, it's 50s Elvis. It's rock and roll. It's Lieber and Stoller. It's Jailhouse Rock. Like, what more can you sort of say? It just feels like it's a song that explains itself. 
um, it's so infectious and it's steeped in so much history and has been spoken about so much over the years that there's almost nothing new that I feel I could say about it. Um, just very interesting to have it dropped into the charts now because it feels like a little snapshot of like how much pop has changed in the 45 years that passed between this day and Elvis's day. Um, although I will say it getting to number one, having sold just 20,000 copies or there and thereabouts is a sign. I think that the downloads chart now needs to be incorporated Yeah. because the number one on the downloads chart right now is what you waiting for by Gwen Stefani. <laughs> and I feel like that would be, yeah, Damn yeah, it. which only got to number four in the actual charts itself. And so I think that, yeah, that's maybe a little sign that what will happen in two or three months time, that the download charts are going to start being incorporated into the the singles charts and classified as legal tender um that it yeah i think that this is you know like it's not a problem exactly because jailhouse rock is great you know it's a classic Mm -hmm. track but i think its sales are a sign that new formats need to be considered and i think the charts need to like update themselves a little bit. I understand that this was part of a little bit of a campaign because loads of Elvis singles got reproduced around this time and there was a little yeah. bit of a push for him to get the thousandth number one as well because he'd had the most, I think, up to that point or he was next, he was joint with the Beatles and they wanted him to overtake them or something like that. But 20,000 sales for a number one um, is pretty poor. You know, I, I think it's pretty low. I think that it's a sign that the download charts need to be considered now because there's thousands and thousands. I would say more than 50% of some song sales are just not being counted on the singles chart um, at the moment. Yeah, I don't know whether to mention this, but do you know about the idea that Jailhouse Rock is a queer song? Yes. No, I didn't know this. this. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, apparently. I mean, there is kind of some theories that there are kind of homoerotic things in it like number 47 tells number three you're the cutest jailbird i ever did see i just thought it's an interesting thing to know it might be true Mm. might not but if it is a queer song then yeah it's quite quite ahead of its time i suppose i mean i would never want to speculate about you know, Elvis's sexuality, but you know, he was no, a very, very no. sexually liberated person, especially for his day. And there was so mm. much nudge, nudge, wink, wink um, in such an obscure way at this time. Like the, the, the levels of obfuscation you had to put around it was so, so big that almost anything could be interpreted as a queer song. But it does have some basis, I think, because I mean, I mean, we all know about James Dean and all the stuff around that. And there is yeah, that course, kind yeah. of vibe here that you know rebellion does that just mean social rebellion or does it also mean like you know there is something different about you and i could definitely see like how if there was some form of modern day elvis which is kind of an impossible thing to imagine but i could definitely see how a modern day elvis would be like a queer icon because of that sense of liberation so i i get it i do get it i don't really think i don't know if i buy into it as like a queer coded song but i definitely get it i really do yeah I think it's one of those things where you can observe something without taking part in it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, last up this week, it is this. One night 
Okay, this is One Night Double A Side with I Got Stung by Elvis Presley. Released as a standalone single, One Night Double A Side with I Got Stung is Elvis Presley's 25th single to be reissued in the UK, his 136th single to be released overall in the UK, and his 20th single to reach number one. This is not the last time that we'll be discussing Elvis on this podcast either. The double A-side single is a reissue of the same single which got to number one in 1959, which itself was a cover of a song by Smiley Lewis, originally recorded in 1956. One Night I Got Stung went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Elvis Presley off the top of the charts, and it stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week at number one, it sold 20,000 copies, beating competition from Empty Souls by Manic Street Preachers, which got to number two, Somebody Told Me by The Killers, which got to number three, Staring at the Sun by Rooster, which got to number five, Strings of Life by Soul Central, which got to number six, and Live Twice by Darius, which got to number seven. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, one night I got stung, dropped 19 places to number 20. <laughs> By the time it was done on the charts, one night I got stung had spent a total of 18 weeks inside the top 100. The song has never received any official certification from the British phonographic industry, but the song still holds the distinction of being the 1,000th number one single in UK chart history and used to hold the distinctions of being the lowest selling number one single, which it will have that record broken next year, and having the biggest drop from number one in UK chart history until it is matched and then beaten in the future. So, Andy. One night and I got stung. You can give a little mention to I got stung if you like. I feel like there's less to say about that, but I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I mean, all I would really say about I got stung is, first of all, every time someone says it, it just makes me visualise like a kid running up to their mum at a beach saying, Mum, I got stung! And that is like <laughs> actually what the song kind of uses as its metaphor. I like that it has that. Um, 
kind of flight of the bumblebee thing where the vocals kind of sound a bit frenetic like like the buzzing bee don't know if that's like yeah. intentional but it sort of seems like a reference there um yeah i mean i got stung kind of represents the side of elvis and his writing and people around him writing that is not so magnificent which is that sometimes some of the metaphors are really strained and can't propel a whole song <laughs> um i've always thought return to sender like really plays on the postal delivery metaphor way longer than it has any right to um, and there's quite a lot of elder songs it's like yeah so you've got an idea of you're going to compare love to this and that's the whole song folks um, and I Got Stung is one of those but One Night is better um, One Night is one of those Elvis songs that I kind of struggle to recall a lot of the time because I get it confused with It's Now or Never it really sounds quite a lot like It's Now or Never and it's definitely in that style um, of kind of crooning if you will and he's very good at that you know um, what else is there to say really it's another two Elvis songs and we've just gone on about them for ages and kind of paid as much tribute as we can yeah, I mean, One Night is decent. I have no idea why this was chosen, of all Elder songs, to, to take that prestigious thousandth number one. Um, that is a mystery to me. But it's nice enough. I've got some facts for you, though, if you like. Um, yes, we always like facts. So... Obviously, everything has been, uh, you know, either Elvis or Steve Brookstein this week. And so we are in the midst of a run here of every song since Vertigo by U2. Vertigo by U2 was the last one that doesn't count here. Every song since then has been either a cover or a re-release. We have had no original songs since Vertigo by U2. We've had wow. I'll Stand By You by Girls Aloud. We've had Band Aid 20. And we've had the three songs this week, which are, of course, a cover and three re-releases. Um, so that is quite the run we've had here. We thankfully do get some original songs next week, but even two songs next week don't fully count. Um, there's quite a lot of wheel spinning at the moment. Also, I Got Stung is the shortest song that we've ever covered up to this point. It's one minute and 49 seconds long. Um, very, very brief. Um, the previous shortest song, as far as I can tell, was Gotta Get Through This by Daniel Beddingfield, which really? was like yeah. two minutes and 20. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the shortest song we've ever covered as well. Can you tell I've not got much to say about this? One Night is decent. <laughs> it's very much like it's now or never. It's fine. I Got Stung is forgettable, silly simile, Elvis. Um, but both get a solid thumbs in the middle from me. Yeah. I'm glad you don't have much to say about it, because neither do I. Let's <laughs> um, not say I think it's bad or anything. I don't think it's bad. I think it's quite good. Um, obviously not as good as Jailhouse Rock, but does that kind of... You can see the DNA of like early Beatles in there more than mm. you can Jailhouse Rock, I think. Lizzie, you're gonna love my notes in a second. <laughs> oh, am I really? Um, but yeah, uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have much to say about it. Like, two number ones on the trot isn't bad going. I reckon this Elvis chap will go far. <laughs> Is that the first time this has happened, by the way? Um, yeah, it must that someone be. has knocked themselves off the top spot, surely. Not the first time ever, but the first time oh, in the... For us, millennium. yeah. I think it might yeah. be the first time for us, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll start with I Got Stung, because I have much less to say uh, about that. Um, it's a little bit hit and miss for me. Uh, I like it, generally. I think it has the tempo and the general demeanour of a 50s Elvis number, but I think it lacks a bit of energy and a bit of emotional urgency. Like you, Andy, I'm sort of bored of the metaphor quite quickly. Mm. 
Um, I struggle to think about it when it's over. Um, whereas One Night, um, I am quite surprised by One Night. I think it's an Elvis song I've not previously encountered. Um, I think a potentially very dreary ballad is given quite a lot of pep, uh, an emotional yeah. impact by the performance. It sounds slightly drunk. Like it's the yeah. end of a long Ooh, night yeah. and Elvis is like leaning on the shoulder like, one night with you. That might not be an act, to be fair. <laughs> uh, yeah. He might, no, he might yeah, be method acting there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's rambunctious and it's sort of slurred, uh, you know, at least for like a waltzing ballad. I feel like this is a much better representation of what Elvis meant for popular culture in the late 50s, like uh, uh, compared to I Got Stung, that he was a rebel of the rock and roll scene and he made girls scream and he made boys want to be like him and he made parents quake in their boots. You know, like, I feel like this has more of the jailhouse rock spirit than I Got Stung, which feels like a quick kind of, you know, I mean, it's a double A side, but like it was originally a B side to the one night single in the 50s. Um, This is angsty. And I think that's something I love most about 50s rock and roll, which is that there's gen. I just love that feeling of like angst for the first time in popular culture, in music anyway, where it's like, you know, it's like there's a gurning and a grunting face. And what it actually reminded me of, Lizzie, when you said that this reminded you more of the early Beatles, I'm actually surprised that they never covered this at one point yeah, or another too. during their live sets, because it reminds me of I Saw Her Standing There, if you get what I mean. There's a particular point in this song where, like, there's a particular chord change, and in my head, all I can sing is, Well, my heart went boom when I crossed that... And, like, it, it, I don't know yeah, what... Yeah. The particular, I think it's the move into the bridge, but I, I'm trying to imagine now. I saw her standing there as like a waltz. Now I feel like it's you know I, I feel like that's got to be out there somewhere or with you know AI or whatever. Like you know what would I saw her standing there sound like if it was in a waltz time? Um, so yeah, I was keen on this. Um, not enough to vault it, but I think that. Yeah, this for an Elvis song I've not really come across before. I was really nicely surprised by this. It's a weird period for the charts, this. Um, I feel like, you know, our or my era for the charts has kind of been briefly put on hold while people who remember the past want to get involved and have a go and buy some singles and then the download charts take over <laughs> and it's like, yep, okay, it's on its way. Like, the pop, pop, pop charts are on their way to like just being a thing for under 25s as opposed to like you know adults as well um but yeah this is this is pretty cool i like it you know the original version that you mentioned by smiley lewis mm. um and you mentioned that there's a kind of sleazy air to this and you look at the original lyrics and it's kind of easy to see why because the original lyrics is one night of sin is what i'm now paying for ah the things I did okay. and I saw would make the earth stand still. It kind of implies, I don't know, like an affair or something, or mm. something unspoken. Whereas this Elvis version kind of turns it into a a kind of longing song. It's more yeah. cleaned up. Hmm. But yeah, ah, very interesting. Yeah. So he's retained that spirit with some different lyrics. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So we're going to run back down the order um we're just going to go back to against all odds by steve brookstein that's n- that just misses the vault for me only just though very very the close vault. um 
Sorry, not the vault, the pie hole. (laughs) 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 No, no, the pie hole. I definitely, definitely mean the pie hole. Just about missed the pie hole. Um, Andy, what about you? Yeah, um, it was never going to get in the vault. Um, It is in the pie hole for me. Yeah, um, I I feel a bit bad about it because it's really like beyond his control in the same way that FURB by Frankie was kind of beyond her control. But I've set the precedent. I've been mean to Frankie, so I'm going to be mean to Steve as well. Pie hole, sorry. And Lizzie, what about you? I am going to put it in the pie hole alongside the other against all odds. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is that the first time that the same song has been pie hole twice? Uh, must be <laughs> double pieing. We should call it the. The Collins the hole, pie. the Phil hole. Oh no, no, not that. <laughs> the Bentos zone. <laughs> um, jailhouse Rock. Uh, I'm putting that in the vault. What about you, Andy? It just it feels weird for me to put something like that in the vault that is popping up. You know, the best part of fifty years after its release. Um, but then there are songs that are wildly out of their time later on that I'm probably going to put in the vault. So, I guess I will put this in, but it feels really weird. I mean, you've done it anyway, so it makes no odds, but yeah, I I will put it in, I guess, yeah. Uh, Lizzie, how about you? Well, I wasn't going to put it in for the same reason, that it feels like we should have another, not another tier, but it's like when, you know, like when you have a review site that will give something a 10 out of 10, but it's almost obligatory because it has just influenced so much that... He feels like giving it anything else would be a crime. Um, I'm not going to vault it, but uh, like you say, it's already in, so what difference does it make? I know what you mean, though, that it does feel a bit like cheating, almost, on Jailhouse Rock's behalf. But yes. Um, And one night I got stung. I think if it was just one night, I would put it in. But because it's a double A side, uh, it misses out on the vault. So, Lizzie, how about you? Yeah, not for me, I'm afraid. And Andy? Yeah, solid middle tier for me, that one. Yeah. Cool. All right, then. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. When we come back, we'll be continuing our journey through 2005. So it was lovely to see you all again. Um, Thank you for bearing with us while we had a little rest after 2004. And we'll see you next time. So goodbye. Bye-bye. See ya.